Hello and welcome to the Aviva podcast and another of our data science specials. My name is Ben Moss and today we're going to be finding out more about cognitive reserve and how it links to dementia. Now last year a three-month project was launched between Cambridge University and Aviva to look at factors that may reduce the likelihood of dementia, one of which was cognitive reserve. Now following on from that and together with a grant from the UK government, a three-year PhD project has now been funded. To discuss this further, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Professor John Simons, an expert in cognitive neuroscience from Cambridge University, and Simon Warsop, Life Analytics Director at Aviva. And we'll start with uh, John. Thank you very much for joining us. Can you just explain what is cognitive reserve and why it's so important in the prevention of diseases like dementia? Yes, hi, good morning. So cognitive reserve really is a concept that we're trying to understand, which people use to explain why some people, it seems, are able to maintain a really sort of healthy um, cognitive ability, um, despite some of the brain changes that seem to happen that are associated with getting older, with ageing, and with diseases such as Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. So it seems that there are some people, for some reason or other, that we don't really quite understand, are able to sort of stave off those cognitive changes. So, you know, the kinds of things like memory loss or, you know, dis disturbances in thinking or problem solving abilities, despite the fact that their brains are getting older. And as sadly as our brains get older, they do start to diminish in their function. They become a bit slower. They become, you know, some of the signals don't work quite as well. The connections between brain cells don't really function quite as efficiently and effectively as they do when we're younger. And despite those brain changes, it seems there are some people, for some reason, as I say, who seem to be able to maintain quite high levels of cognitive functioning, whereas other individuals, sadly, do start to feel those brain changes having an effect on their memory and having an effect on other forms of thinking. And Simon Walsop from Aviva, we, we know that this started as a three-month project on dementia, but what interested you as someone who works for an insurance company in taking this project further and focusing in on cognitive reserve? Yeah, hi Ben, thanks. Um, so look, we, we asked um, Cambridge to do a literature review to find out the things that were impacting dementia. And the, the thing that piqued our interest the most was cognitive reserve. Now, partly because it wasn't um, terribly well understood, there wasn't a lot of consensus in the, in the literature, but partly because this is something where we, we believe it's possible that people can increase their um, that their resilience in the in, in the face of um, dementia, um, and so could we find ways in which we could help people um, in, improve their later lives by staving off um, dementia? And, and the other thing, the other idea that um, was fascinating to us was this idea: you might be able to measure cognitive reserve, and so you might be able to understand um, early on in life which people are most at risk of um, that the. the um, terrible effects of dementia, and so those two those two ideas of you know increasing people's resilience to to dementia and also being able to measure um, how resilient people are in the face of dementia meant the cognitive reserve for us was a fascinating area that we really wanted to uh, explore more. And um, John Simons from Cambridge University, I'll come back to you. How much research has been done on dementia? I mean, it's a very well known term most people are, are, are aware of it and potentially how it can affect people particularly older people but how much do we actually know about it well we know an enormous amount there's been you know an enormous amount of research has been done over the last few decades on dementia and we know you know that for one thing dementia isn't a sort of single unitary 
um, um, thing. There are many different forms of dementia. So Alzheimer's disease is the most well-known and, and by far the most um, prevalent, but there are many other forms of dementia as well that are associated with slightly different types of brain changes and slightly different um, things that cause um, those brain changes. So for Alzheimer's disease, for example, there's proteins that build up in the brain. Those proteins cause the brain's neurons, the cells in the brain to function um, less well um, and to the, for the connections to become damaged, for example, so that the brain can't talk to different parts of the brain quite as effectively um, as it can do when, when, when we're younger. Um, and we know, you know that there are many things that we can do perhaps to um, understand those brain changes, but at the moment there's not much we can really do to sort of to help with those brain changes. So we, there's no cure for these forms of dementia yet. You know, it's difficult to, to find drugs that really have any sort of um, useful effect in reducing these um, brain changes. And and as a result, you know, that the sorts of um, changes to, to our cognitive function that are associated with those. But what we are, you know, really interested in trying to find out is whether there are things we can do earlier on in life. So as Simon was saying, you know, we're really starting to be interested and there's a lot of work going on in the area of trying to understand in, uh, you know, sort of midlife, middle-aged, um, um, uh, middle-aged part of, of development, you know, are there changes that are very, very perhaps subtle changes that might be a kind of precursor, if you like, you know, an early stage of what's going to happen later on in life. And maybe if we can find, uh, identify what it is that's, you know, that's going on in midlife that might predict something that happens later on in life, perhaps at that stage, we might be a bit more successful in being able to do something that can intervene, if you like, that can maybe either slow down those brain changes or to put in extra support, extra help, give people strategies, do some sort of thing at that early midlife stage that could perhaps slow down those changes or and maybe, you know, perhaps even sort of prevent those um, changes from turning into a sort of full-blown um, dementia syndrome later on. So that's sort of where we're really at in terms of the sort of cutting edge of the research in this area. And Simon, Aviva is a very large insurance company. So do we know how much effect dementia and other cognitive diseases have on our customers? Yeah, so I mean, we can only really speculate uh, to some extent. But yeah, as you say, uh, Ben, Aviva is a huge company. We have a relationship with our customers throughout their lives. And one of the things we've all noticed recently is that um, lives are getting longer. But for us, the, the fascinating point in this space is uh, not just the length of life, but the quality of life. And you know, it's, it's no surprise that um, dementia very badly affects uh, quality of life. Um, and, and numbers suggest that um, there are around about um, 850,000 people with dementia in 2014. That's increasing. That should be, uh, or that's expected to be, sorry, over a million people um, in 2021 affected by dementia. So, uh, from from Aviva's point of view, anything we can do to help our customers increase the quality of their life for longer, so they're spending more of their, uh, you know, the, the longer life they're living, more of those, those years well, um, is, is clearly in our interest. And John, I mentioned in the introduction that um, there's now a three-year PhD project which is being funded by uh, partly by Aviva. What's the objective for the project? Well, really, we're interested to try and understand this notion of cognitive reserve a bit better and to try and understand, you know, what are the contributors to this thing, cognitive reserve? It really does exist as a identifiable sort of phenomenon. What is it? You know, if we can determine what factors contribute to this, what factors lead somebody to be more likely to develop cognitive reserve as opposed to not, 
then you know that might perhaps be important for helping them to age a bit more successfully if you like uh, maybe you know even prevent things like dementia from from happening so really what we're trying to do is to identify well, what are those factors and this, this phd project is going to explore whether there's information that we can um, we can we can acquire from people perhaps to do with their background. So, you know, things like their demographics so age and sex and education and socioeconomic status, for example, whether there are a number of different health factors that might contribute to cognitive reserves. So, for example, you know, people's diets, um, the, the kinds of exercise they might do. Um, you know, whether they're sleeping well, um, those sorts of things, which all, you know, are thought perhaps to be related to these sort of some of these cognitive changes. There might be a whole lot of different lifestyle activities that people um, take part in. So whether they tend to travel, whether they have, uh, you know, rich sort of social lives and, and meet new people, whether they do, you know, new things, learning new things, learning a musical instrument or a second language or something like that. Different pastime people might do. Generally, people, you know, there's a thought that these people have a sort of rich and varied um, sort of um, um, lifestyle in terms of new experiences and things, things that kind of, you know, stimulate us cognitively, cognitively if you like, then that might also be something that can be helpful in these, um, in terms of sort of, you know, staving off these sorts of brain changes. So the kind of things we're trying to do is to say, can we identify all these different factors, lots and lots of information on people, and then see whether that's, you know, there's any of those factors that predict whether people are in middle age, more or less likely to show some sort of subtle memory um, um, and patterns of, of performance, performance on, on, on some of our memory tasks that might perhaps be predictive of something that's going to happen later on in life. So, you know, we might be able to say there's certain subtle changes in memory in middle age that we can relate to that background information. And then that can help us try to understand what it is that means that some people do better on memory tasks in middle age, some people do less well on memory tasks. And that might be later predictive of what could happen subsequently to those people in terms of perhaps, you know, leading to something like dementia. And I'll hold my hands up here and just be com completely open and say that I am not a data scientist. So uh, forgive me if I, if I get this slightly wrong, but the proposal for the project mentions you're going to be using this novel approach of continuous episodic retrieval measures combined with computational model based analysis to reveal the precision with which memories are recalled. Uh, what exactly does that mean? <laughs> I apologise for the jargon in that proposal. <laughs> uh, lots of technical terms that are very difficult to understand. Basically, um, you know, so the standard memory tests that are used in, you know, in 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 most um, uh, sort of neuropsychological um, clinics, for example, tend to be memory tests that you know you give people a list of words to learn, and then you say, you know, can you recall that list of words, or you know, was this word on that list, yes or no? And so you're asking people to make a kind of what you might call a binary decision, yes or no, or you know something something where there's you know one choice or another choice and you can basically that's very good for measuring you know has somebody remembered that word yes or no you know it gives you that kind of you know remembered versus forgotten kind of of contrast which is great but it's not particularly sort of sensitive it's not particularly subtle it's just you know a yes or a no it's a one or a zero and what we're realizing more and more is that memory is far more fine-grained than that it's far more rich and varied there's a lot more going on in memory than that sometimes we remember things but we remember them only vaguely but we're still remembering them it's just you know we can't remember so many of the details and it may be a bit fuzzy and a bit vague whereas there are other times we remember something and we remember the full-blown details you know we remember exactly what happened we can kind of relive that experience again we can feel it sort of unfolding in front of us in, you know, in our mind's eye and we can remember the sights and the sounds and the smells and who was there and who said what to whom and all the different things and it's a very vivid and and rich sort of memory so there's that kind of gradation 
that isn't picked up at all in standard memory tests. And so those memory tests are typically not very good at measuring the sorts of subtle changes that we think might be important in middle age. Because in middle age, we're not talking about people completely forgetting, having amnesia, you know, where they can't remember anything. We're talking perhaps about some very, very subtle little changes that might be predictive of what might happen later on in life. So we need a very, very sensitive test to be able to pick those up. So we've been developing over the last few years uh, uh, some tests that measure not remembered versus forgotten, but remember how precisely people are able to measure, to be able to remember uh, their memories. So we have this what's called a continuous measure, hence the, the, the terminology, which where we have we show items on a screen and those items can be in a in a random location and they can be in a random orientation. So these might be, you know, everyday objects like a, a glass or a candle or something. Every a random orientation, random location and a random colour. And then we present the items on the screen in a memory test later and give people a kind of a response wheel and they can move that wheel in a continuous sort of way and just change the location until it's just about precisely where they think they saw it in the first study phase. And then we can change the wheel again and they can just make the orientation just, was it that orientation? Was it slightly further round to the right and was it slightly further? And they can just keep you know, adjusting it until they think they're remembering it as precisely as they possibly can. And then we're able to measure, you know, with our with our computer models, we can measure not just have they remembered that item was studied or not, but we can measure how precisely they're remembering all the different factors, all the different features of that item. And that again gives us a much more fine grained and detailed measure of their memory abilities, not just yes versus no, but actually the precision of that memory. So it gives us a lot more detail and hopefully a much more sort of sensitive measure of memory. Thank you very much for explaining that. Uh, that was much simpler than the uh, than the language I used in, in the question. So thank you. Um, Simon, how do you see this research being applied in the real world, particularly in terms of the work that Aviva does? Yeah, that's a brilliant question. But so, so look, I, I can imagine that the nirvana here would be if we could come up with a way of measuring a cognitive reserve that was highly predictive of um, people's dementia outcomes, then that would be fantastic. But from there, being then able to say to people right this is your current measure of cognitive reserve what is likely to happen in terms of dementia in later life for you is this but if you do these next actions then you can actually improve your cognitive reserve and by improving your cognitive reserve you can make sure that dementia is either pushed out a little bit further doesn't last as long or, or maybe doesn't even um, get, get you at all and, and so that concept that idea is incredibly attractive to us, you know, from a societal point of view, but but also for making sure that our um, our customers, our pensioners, have a better quality of life, um, and and that we can help them, you know, much earlier on in their life. So so for us, there's a lot of attraction here in finding this this nirvana, this ability to measure. Um, you know, what what John describes in terms of um, um, testing people's subtlety of memory. Is really interesting, and of course, what we'd be looking to do is is take that from there down into a much more simple um, set of questions that we'll be able to apply. But you know, I'm I'm thinking a long way down that down the line here. I think finding great measures, and as John describes them, which isn't binary, was a single fact remembered or or not remembered. Um, that that is the first step in in terms of a, a long process, I suspect, here to get into you know that that nirvana that we describe about be able to measure it and then be able to tell people how to improve their cognitive reserve um, that that would just be brilliant if we could do that and 
John, just a, a final one for you. It's not every day I get to speak to an expert in your area, so I might be putting him on the spot slightly, but I'll give it a go. Is there anything from your research or from what you know, the work you've done that people can take into their everyday lives to maybe help their cognitive reserve or you know boost uh, give them a boost their brain power or you know help them uh, with their memory is there is there anything in particular that you've pinpointed in your research that says if people do this on a regular basis that can help well i think there's you know that there's lots of research out there suggesting you know there might be these wonder cures you know if you just do start doing sudokus or something that's going to stave <laughs> off alzheimer's you know there's all this sort of claims that you can see out there and I think, you know, there, there's there's some suggestions that, you know, if you start doing Sudokus, you can you can receive a boost from that sort of thing. So that can be a good thing, but it tends to be very short term. And I think perhaps what the research is actually telling us and, and you know, there's other research that says that something else is also you know going to be a bit of a benefit. And I think really what the research is telling us, it's novelty. It's doing new things, stimulating your brain by taking on new things that you haven't done before and varying those things. So it might be Sudoku's one week. It might be, you know, learning another language another week. It might be learning, doing a bit of painting or something a, a week after that. Lots of social stimulation, meeting new people. Think putting yourself in slightly, you know, sort of, you know, not exactly uncomfortable, but, you know, new situations where you don't just, you know, sort of act automatically. You've got to think, well, how am I, how am I going to, you know, react in this sort of situation or how am I going to learn to this new game or this new um, task I'm going to set myself? That constant sort of, you know, slightly stretching yourself, slightly sort of stimulating yourself does perhaps seem to be something that can help to sort of stave off. Um, these sorts of changes and perhaps you know just keep your it's a bit like an exercise thing you know if you do the same exercise every day you rapidly find that it doesn't help you very much anymore you have to move to different exercises and exercising different muscle groups and that kind of thing so it might be analogous to that you know varying things stimulating yourself doing new things all the time could well be a very useful thing to do Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, that was Professor John Simons from Cambridge University and Simon Warsop from Aviva. Thank you so much for joining me on the Aviva podcast today. Uh, if you want to find out any more about some of the topics discussed in the podcast or get information on quantum, Aviva's data science practice, please just visit the show notes.